Father, as we open our Bibles today, would you please speak to our hearts? We do want to thank you for our mothers that are here today, and we want so much to encourage them and challenge them. But we all need encouragement. We all need challenge. We all need to walk in the truth and pay attention to obedience and live with surrendered lives. Father, would you use your word as you do so often at this time to convict us and to encourage us, to instruct us, to guide us. May your Holy Spirit have great freedom and liberty here today to use this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you don't have to turn there, but I want to couch our thoughts today um, in, in the reality of how much a mother loves her children. There is, in 1 Kings chapter 3, if you want to look it up later, you could write that down. It's a most interesting story. In the Old Testament of our Bible, it's 1 Kings chapter 3. And uh, this is the historical account of King Solomon, the son of David and Bathsheba. He was the third king in succession in Israel of old. And Solomon was noted for his wisdom. In fact, this story that is recorded in 1 Kings 3, it is a most remarkable story, is recorded as an illustration of Solomon's wisdom. God had granted Solomon anything he would ask for, and because he didn't ask for wealth at that point, and he only asked for wisdom from God, God gave it to him. He was known and is known as the wisest man that ever lived. And because he didn't ask for wealth, God gave him wealth anyway. Sometimes that's how God does. And so Solomon asked for wisdom and he became known around the known world of that day. Uh, dignitaries and princes and kings and queens from other country would come to observe his riches and to sit under him as he um, uh, shared his wisdom. Well, the account that's given in 1 Kings chapter 3 to illustrate his great wisdom uh, is an interesting story of two young mothers. They happen to be women of the night from the red light district. It's clear from the passage that's who they are. They, they live in the same home and they both um, have had children recently. They both have had babies what happened in this situation was that during the night, one of the mothers, one of these young mothers' child passed away during the night, died in bed with her. She rose in the morning and she accused the other mother of having discovered that her baby had died during the night. She accused her that while she slept, she had gotten up, discovered that her baby was dead, and had gone in and swapped out the babies, sleeping with their mothers, and taken uh, the, the live child from her and put her dead child next to that mother. So she accused this mother of this um, immoral dealing and of swapping out the children, and they couldn't agree. And the, the mother whose baby was living recognized her baby and she said, no, that's not true. But the other mother wanted her baby so much she fabricated this incredible lie. And so they find themselves before King Solomon sitting on his throne to adjudicate and they walk in and you can just imagine the scene of wailing and carrying on. And they come in and they tell their story and Solomon listens and he 
looks at them and he hears their story and then this is what is illustrative of his great wisdom and he had the power and authority in the context of these eastern kingdoms of this era of time to do this. He listens to the story and then he says, get a sword, cut the baby in half and give half to each each mother. Immediately, the mother who was lying, whose baby had died and who wanted to steal the child from the other mother, says, that's a great plan. Let's do that. The other mother, who it was her really her baby, immediately breaks down and she insists that they give the child to the other mother to spare its life. And Solomon says, that's the mother. Give the baby to her, the one who insisted on giving it away. So not only in that story of 1 Kings 3 do we have an illustration, a profound illustration of King Solomon's wisdom. How clever was that? But embedded in the story is the truth that I want you to focus on this morning. Is the most remarkable love that a mother has for a child. I would suggest this morning that there is no love that compares with it. Now, there might be men here like Elkanah in our story in 1 Samuel when we get there later in the second half of our message today, whose whose wife Hannah was childless and she's weeping and upset. And Elkanah, he's all man, all husband. And he says to her, why are you crying? She's crying because her arms are empty. And he says to her, Why are you crying? Am I not worth 10 children? (laughs) That is vintage husband. And the answer is, no, you slug. You're not even worth one child. (laughs) A mother won't hesitate for a second if she has to make a choice of of a runaway locomotive running over her husband or her child. Bye bye, husband. You are gone. If she can only save one, it is the child. Am I correct? And I I just want you to know that love is just so deep and serious, isn't it? And it is so real. A mother's love for her children. And so it is that in the context of Jesus teaching on discipleship in Matthew chapter 8, that I want us this Mother's Day morning to speak specifically to mothers who especially if you have young children in your home or are holding babies in your arms. I especially want to speak to you to this point. Mothers, I want to challenge you today and ask you if you love your child enough to give them away. Do you love your child enough to give them away or do you love your child too much to give them away? And that becomes a very important question in our context today of Matthew chapter 8. Let's turn there. You'll recall that last Sunday we were coming off the Sermon on the Mount and we did uh, in the entirety of chapter 8 where we, and, uh, we found our Lord immediately as He came off the mountain from preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He began to do spectacular works miraculous works to demonstrate his power. And in fact, Matthew records for us in the next two chapters, chapter 8 and 9, he records eight miracles, eight specific miracles. We um, grouped several of them into three categories to illustrate Jesus as Lord of the universe. We found that he was 
sovereign over sickness. We found that he was sovereign over the sea. And we found that he was sovereign over Satan. He's the Lord of the universe. I I just was encouraged by reminding myself of that last week as you listened in. In the middle of these miracles that took place in the life of our Lord, you'll notice that Matthew includes some small segments, um, bites of teaching. We skipped over one of those passages, and it's verses 18 through 22. And I would like to use this as a foundation for our text today as we talk about Christ calling on our lives to be disciples. To follow him in an extraordinary way with a high level of commitment. Let's read our text and break it down and understand it. And then I want us to end up in 1 Samuel. And I want us to use Hannah as a model of a mother who gave away her child. I've titled our message today, A Mother's High Calling. Thinking as I put that title to this message that it is a high calling to a mother to be able to take her child and give that child away because it goes contrary to everything that's within her. A mother is not designed to give a child away. A mother is designed to keep her children close. And so maybe the sermon would be better titled A Mother's Great Conflict or A Mother's Divided Heart. But I trust by the end of the message you will see that it is a mother's high calling To hold her child before the Lord and give him away. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22, the Lord is teaching. Uh, He's been doing miracles. Remember, he has healed the the centurion's servant. And uh, he has healed Peter's mother-in-law. He has healed this um, pitiful man who's been paralyzed. And um, he's healed a leper. And so the crowd has stuck with him. And it says in verse 18, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. That was to the other side of the sea. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. What a remarkable teaching from our Lord. Let's break it down and take a look and see what we have here. The first thing I see in the passage is a willing, a willing, but evidently not ready disciple. A willing, but evidently not ready disciple. He's an interesting character. We know enough from the text that he's a scribe. That means he's a student of the Old Testament Bible. The law of Moses, he's an expert in the law. He is also one who is potentially involved in copying or making copies of the scripture. Um, A very detailed and copious work. And they knew the scriptures and they studied the scriptures. They were a little more tolerable than the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but they did still tend to be a proud religious group. 
somewhere along the line, perhaps observing the miracles of our Lord or sitting under the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, this scribe has come to a place where he wants to follow Jesus. He's ready to cross the line. We have to get there, don't we? You got to get to a place where you believe that Jesus is who he says he is and you say, okay, I'm ready to follow him. This scribe evidently thought that he was ready. If you read between the lines, you kind of get the idea that our Lord was concerned that maybe he didn't really know what he was getting himself into when he said, Lord, I'm ready to be your disciple because we're followed by this willing but evidently not quite ready disciple. We're followed, secondly, in the passage with a warning from Jesus, a warning from our Lord Jesus. And look what he says. The scribe says, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus says, I'm warning you, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I'm picturing as I walk down the fence line of our new property that we don't have yet, um, we have an offer back out, pray for that. Um, There is about halfway down uh, a fox's den. It's probably an old groundhog hole. Uh, Sometimes the mother fox will dig her own hole and they will go down in the ground. And Jesus pictures that and his audience could picture this, the fox preparing a hole there. I've snuck past in the spring and springs past as I've walked the fence line and seen uh, half a dozen pups or four or five pups laid out in the sunshine on the dirt mound next to their hole. And then as they discovered I was approaching, they're blip, blip, blip right down the hole. They have a place to live. They have a place of security. And you know, birds make nests. They they just most incredibly know when it's time to build a nest. And most of them choose pretty good places to build a nest, except the one that always wants to use the wreath on our front door. (laughs) And we have to discourage it daily. Just how God designed it. And Jesus is putting a word picture in their mind. He said, you know, foxes have dens. Birds of the air have nests, but if you're going to be my disciple, you're not even going to have that. This is one of those points of Scripture that I think, as you're reading Scripture, you should mark it and you should say, I need to ponder that. Whenever Jesus gives these word pictures, those are good points in your Bible study to say, I'm going to remember that and I'm just going to meditate. It's a word picture, so you've got to kind of think it through. I think there's at least two conclusions you will come to if you think about this. First of all, he certainly sees this man as unprepared um, because Jesus is saying in this word picture, number one, I think his conclusion is that if you're going to be my disciple and follow me, number one, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. There's just no real good place where we live. Now, the thought occurs to you that if Jesus is wandering around and if you think about the gospel accounts... You know that Jesus never had a place to lay his head. He said, I'm I'm telling you, I have nowhere to lay my head. Jesus never had an address. Jesus never had a place where, other than his hometown, after he grew up. But when he began his public ministry, he was, in a sense, nomadic. He was a wanderer. And he went from place to place. And you stop and think, you say, but Pastor Van, if all of us follow Christ at this level of discipleship where we forsake all others and we forsake all that we have, then who's going to pay the bills? Who's going to keep the lights on in this place? That's a great question. And one of the things that we always need to do when we study Scripture, and we'll see this conflict come up again in the next disciples' 
statement. But the idea is that there is a balance in Scripture always, isn't there? And it is possible that though all of us need to have the highest level of commitment to the gospel, and we need to be fully surrendered of all that we have to our Lord Jesus, that there are those who will make a higher level of commitment. They will make a level of discipleship commitment where they literally forsake, in a very literal fashion, their family and stuff and their jobs. At, a, at some level, a young man from our church did this nine years ago and took his wife and his children at the time. They just had two little girls at the time. Nine years later, they now have four children. His name is Matt White. Matt is graduating right now from the Master's Seminary after nine years of full-time school. He's in conversation with a church in Illinois to become their senior pastor. Pray for Matt and Amy. Um, we hope to get to see them in a couple weeks. Matt was um, in his early 30s. He had just built a house. He was running his father's um, HVAC refrigerator business, air conditioning business. Life was good. He had a bass boat. He had a goose blind. He had good friends. He was chairman of the deacon board here. We had just brought him up to the elder board. And Matt said, one day, it's time for me to go. They shut down their house. He walked up to his dad. He said, Dad, you're on your own in the business. I'm out of here. I don't know that all of us are called to that level. And so there is a balance. There is a tension. On the other hand, all of us need to ask ourselves that question. Am I willing to forsake all to follow Christ? Jesus says, first of all, if you do this, it's very uncomfortable. And secondly, with this word picture of the fox in the bird's nest, I think he's saying life will be very unpredictable. Very unpredictable. And the testimony of the gospel account of our Lord's daily and weekly and monthly ministry was indeed that it was unpredictable. He found himself going different directions, leaving towns prematurely after they were not well received. Life was very uncertain. It was uncomfortable and unpredictable. There is a part of ministry and discipleship and following Christ with a level of unpredictableness to it that is kind of exciting. I remember as a little boy growing up hearing stories from my Uncle Harold. I've talked about my Uncle Harold. He was my dad's brother. He's still alive. He lives in... Uh, South Carolina. I think he's 90 years old now. He was a pastor and a church planter and a child evangelism fellowship worker for many years. And on occasion, he would come and spend a few days at our home. And when I was a little boy, I would stand there. I'm thinking 9, 10, 11 years old. And I love to hear my Uncle Harold's stories. His life seemed exciting to me. And really, it was uncomfortable and unpredictable. Uncle Harold had graduated from Trinity in Chicago right after World War II, and he'd headed out to, to the Dakotas to plant churches. He almost froze his family to death out there. Someone just the other day was telling me that it's so cold in the Dakotas that in the wintertime, when you go to the store, like Walmart or the grocery store, the whole parking lot is filled with cars that are running. They go, you go in the store, you leave your car running so that it's warm when you get back in. I guess that's true. But Uncle Harold told stories about the hardships of the ministry and planting churches. But then he would talk about pheasant hunting on some guy's farm. And I thought I could do that. <laughs> 
And he talked about when God moved them out of the church planting world of the rural Dakotas down to the rural farming, huge farming counties of northwest Iowa where he was the Child Evangelism Fellowship representative. And he put together a chapel on wheels. He supported himself with finished carpentry work and he fixed up this big trailer and made it a chapel on wheels and would go to all the county fairs and lead people to Christ. And his stories were just incredible and he didn't have any money. Really, his life was unpredictable and uncomfortable. I thought it sounded great. I remember one story where he talked about having to said he had this old Chevy Impala four-door car. And he would he needed gas. This is in the 60s. So gas was like what, 27 cents a gallon. So he thought thought to himself, being a Marceau, he was a good thinker, and he thought, if I need gas, I better go to a gas station. And so he pulls into the gas station, he had no money. He thought about leaving his wristwatch for collateral with the gas station attendant. This is the days of full service attendance. Remember the, the black hose that air pressure rang the bell, cha-ching, when the car ran across and the attendant knew to come out of the all the kids are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and they would come out and wash your windshield, check your oil, and pump your gas for 27 cents a gallon and a smile. So he needed gas, so he pulled in and he said, Lord, I need gas. I'm doing your work. I need to get to these meetings. I'm out of money. We don't have enough resources. We're low on support. And as he was thinking about what to do and praying to get out of the car and go talk to the attendant and see if he could work a deal to pick up a couple gallons of gas, another car pulled in, cha-ching, rang the bell and pulled up and the attendant comes out and the guy rolls down his window and he says, fill me up and fill that guy up too. He didn't have no idea who that guy was. And I thought, wow, to serve the Lord like that would be so exciting. It's nothing but uncomfortable and unpredictable. Jesus said, even the foxes have dens, the birds of the air have nests. You don't know what you're getting into, buddy. Notice that another disciple speaks up in verse 21. Another one of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. It sounds a little harsh to me. We have here number three, a willing but worried disciple. A willing but worried disciple. Lord, I think that it sounds good for me to come follow you, but I'm a little bit worried about some things that I have going on in my life right now. I really can't just walk away. Again, we have the tension, don't we? If everybody left everything and just wandered around serving Jesus, the lights would go off and no one would be there to feed Jesus, right? We know from the New Testament account, we know that it was largely a group of women who supported Jesus so that he could sustain himself in full-time ministry. Somewhere along the line, somebody's got to get up and go to work. They can't just walk around for the gospel. They've got to work for the gospel. So I know there's a balance. We also know the scriptures teach us to honor our father and mother, right? We're to honor them. We're to take care of them. And that's evidently what this disciple has on his mind. Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go bury my father. Many commentators believe that his father was not yet dead, but that in this culture and and custom of this era, it would have been very important for adult children to care for their aging parents. There were no nursing homes. 
And so it is likely that this man's father was still living and that what he was saying is, look, Lord, I'm willing to come follow you, but I have my dad. And when he finally passes away and we settle the estate, then I will be ready to come and follow you. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. Possibly an implication of speaking of spiritually dead people. Let them take care of themselves. You come while I'm here and follow me right now. We get out of this from Jesus that a word of priorities, number four. So we have a willing but not evidently not ready disciple. And Jesus tells him how uncomfortable and unpredictable the ministry will be when he gives him a warning. Thirdly, we have this willing but worried disciple. And Jesus concludes with a word about priorities, a word about our priorities. First of all, we see from this that Jesus, in telling him to go let his father bear, let the dead bury their own dead, that there is an urgency about the gospel ministry and it is a call for sacrifice. There is an urgency and, and it's sacrificial. You want to follow me? Let's come now. You got to take care of your parents? No, walk away from your parents. So it reminds us of the passage, doesn't it, in Matthew 10. Will you just turn the page? We'll get to this in the weeks ahead, but let's just reference it right now. Let's just let our eyes go to verse 37. Look what it says. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Here's our Mother's Day punch. Do you love your children more than Jesus? Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. There is a price to be paid. There is a cost to this discipleship. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life, though, for my sake, Jesus makes a promise, you will end up finding your life. In other words, it will, there will be a great level of satisfaction. You will realize that this is what your life was all about. This is who you're supposed to be. And so when Jesus looks at this, this willing but not ready disciple who reminds Jesus that he needs to take care of his ailing and aging father, Jesus is basically saying to him, you need to love me and be motivated by the gospel at a higher level than you even love your father. Are you ready for this? Mothers, how much do you love your children today? I think you love your children more than you love anything else in the world. And so one of the aspects of this call of discipleship with which we must examine our lives and kind of a grid through which we must pass is asking the question, how do I give my children away to Jesus? When I love them so much and I long for them to be close to me, how do I give them away? There's a conflict there, isn't there? Let's conclude our sermon today by going to probably, no doubt, the most preached passage of Scripture in America today on Mother's Day, and that's 1 Samuel chapter 1. It is a well-known story of a little boy named Samuel, who um, his mother is Hannah, and Hannah gives him away. I would like for a moment to use Hannah as a model for mothers in giving away your children. Mothers, you can give your children away. Here's what Hannah did. Let's just read the story quickly. We notice that a man, a certain man from this long name, the ESV says, Ramathaim Zophim. Ask Willem Griffion how to say it after church. Of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. Here's the man, Elkanah. 
Where he, they identify in the passage who he's the son of so that we know exactly which Alcana we're talking about. And for some reason, and I think we have a clue in the passage, he decided he needed two wives. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. We now have a problem. The first thing we see about Hannah, number one, is that she was lonely. She was lonely. She had no children. I'm confident this morning that there are some who know that loneliness. I have no real good answer for it other than what we see in the passage that God is sovereign even over conception. The only other thing I would say if you're lonely and childless, dear one, is to find somebody else's child to pour your life into. If you don't have your own child to love, love another child. And there's a lot of them around here. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. The second thing we see in the passage is that she was loved. That softens the story a little bit, but we find that Hannah is very lonely and very discouraged. She has empty arms and it creates a deep loneliness. She is loved by her husband and it's a bright spot, but not that bright. And her rival used to poke at her grievously. That's Penina, the other wife, to irritate her. The clue in the story is that evidently, though Elkanah loved Hannah, he didn't have, she didn't conceive children, so he found a wife who would conceive, and he had a number of children with her. This immediately sets up a tension in his home. Um, but to Hannah, verse 5, he gave a double portion because he loved her. Though, he, though the Lord had closed her womb, and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to prov- provoke her. Therefore, Ham- Hannah wept and would not eat. The third thing we see is that she was laughed at by Penina. She was literally bullied by this woman. I think the clue in the passage on that point is that Penina could see clearly that the loved wife was Hannah. And she knew that Elkanah loved Hannah, and she longed for Elkanah to love her the way he loved Hannah. After all, she had given him children. What more could he want? And that woman couldn't even give him children. It's a difficult scenario in the household. Penina with children, lording it over Hannah with no children, jealous of the husband's love. Elkanah has himself in a mess. We see that, this is verse 8 that I referenced earlier, this good husband material. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? It's like, isn't that a good husband? What are you crying for? And let's eat. Get something to eat and stop crying. Why is your heart sad? Come on. Come on, there's, don't... You know, vintage husband, right? All she wants is his heart. He's using logic and his head. All she wants is his love and his patience. And he just wants to eat something for her to stop crying. And then he says, like the dumbest thing in the world, am I not more to you than ten sons? 
No, the answer to that is no. Now get out of here. Just leave me alone. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and she said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of my life and no razor shall touch his head. The fourth thing we see is that she is just longing for a son. She's being laughed at, but she's longing for a son. This concept here of not putting a razor to his head is the idea of a Nazarite vow. The most familiar story we have of that is Samson. How his parents didn't cut his hair. The other two things that made up a Nazarite vow, don't cut his hair. Mark him that way. He has a look about him. Secondly, he's not to touch any unclean thing, namely any dead things. And thirdly, he's never to eat of the fruit of the vine lest he get a fermented grape in his mouth and have wine or alcoholic content enter his body. He's to be separated unto the Lord. The idea is Hannah, in her longing, is bargaining with God. And I understand that that's partly the context of the passage. Lord, if you give me this son, I'll just give him back to you. Well, as she continues praying, Eli thinks that she's drunk. She says, I'm not drunk. I'm just a woman who is troubled. Uh, Verse 15, I am troubled in spirit. I have neither drunk wine nor strong drink. I have just been pouring out my soul before the Lord. And I want you to see if you let your eyes go down to verse 19. They rose early in the morning, worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Number five, she experienced the Lord's blessing. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. You know how the story ends, don't you? She weans him. Elkanah tells her, well, at least raise him up and wean him. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord their yearly sacrifice to pay the vow the next year. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, this is verse 22, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, affirms that. And then, verse 24, it comes to that point. We don't know exactly when it was, maybe at about five years of age. And picture this. They bring the preparations for worship and for sacrifice. They slaughter the bull, verse 25. Verse 26, she says, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman talking to Eli the priest who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord for this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition and I made, I, that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And she worshiped there. She made a vow before she ever conceived that if she had a child, she would give it to the Lord. I wonder if you've done that, ladies, mothers. She made a vow and then she stuck to her vow. I'm sure it was uncomfortable. I mean, this parting, and we know further in the text that annually she would come and resupply him and and give him clothing to grow into. But here she is on her knees holding this little four or five or six-year-old boy kissing his neck, tears wetting him down, saying goodbye as she goes back home to leave him with Eli the priest and his two no-good-for-nothing sons, Hophni and Phinehas. You think the hardest thing in the world a mother can do is give her child away? 
I don't think so. As hard as that is, here's what I think is the hardest thing a mother can do. The hardest thing a mother can do is watch her child walk away from Christ. Not give him to Christ. And Jesus said, you do this and you'll find out how fulfilling it really is. Let me introduce you to a lady who gave her baby to the Lord. All of her babies. Her name's Kathleen. And she's my mother. Um, You haven't got to meet my mother, most of you. Some of you did in the old days. I did my mom's funeral in uh, in 2009. Um, This, I believe, is her high school graduation picture. I need to check with my siblings. It might be while she was at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. There she is when I was the youngest on bottom right. Um, She was a pastor's wife at this time. She played the piano and taught all the kids' ministries. You know, I know, I know that my mother whispered in the ears of her children as she raised them up and as she held them as infants and nursed them and fed them and as she cared for, our, for us. There she is in her retirement years. She whispered in our ears. She taught us. She taught us that the most important thing about our world was the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and that there was nothing else. There she is with my dad. I, I, is that maybe... Um, um, Tasha's wedding, maybe. No, Janet says no. I I should have asked ahead of time. And that's the last picture. Uh, It was a church directory picture, I think, that they bought. Um, She had five children, and she dedicated them all to the Lord, and they all lived for the Lord, and we were scattered for the gospel much of our lives. I can remember often through my uh, 20s, 30s, and 40s, when I still had my mom, that uh, in early 40s, that... Um, We would talk on the phone and I would say, Mom, I should come home. No, don't come home. Something would be going on and I would say, well, I I can get home maybe next week. No, no, no. You'd have to miss church for that. No, you just do what you're supposed to do. You need to do what you're doing. That's You're where God wants you to be, 600 miles away from home. My mom gave her children to the gospel. She gave her children. Do you know the most meaningful thing in my mother's life was that her children walked with God and served the Lord and served in the church and lived for the gospel. I think if you ask my mother on her deathbed that um, if what was it that meant the most about her life, she would say that my children are serving the Lord. After I was 17 years old, I was never home for more than 10 days to two weeks at a time ever again. I missed being home. We would talk on the phone, but always the conversation ended up, keep serving the Lord with gladness. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Mothers, are you actively and intentionally praying and raising your children to follow Christ? What are you whispering in their ears as you nurse them? As you change them, as you bathe them, as you feed them, what are the stories you're telling? What are the songs you're singing? What are the prayers you're praying out loud in your child's ear? Are you pointing them to Christ? Are you casting the vision? Are you planting in them the high calling of giving your life away as a disciple to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you actively, intentionally praying and raising your child to follow Christ. Number two, mothers today, are you willing to let your child go for the gospel? Are you willing to let your child go for the gospel? In the first service, Carolyn McKenzie was here, and I can remember often the difficulty when it was time for Stephen and Kirsten to go back to Africa. 
And they would go to the airport and bid them farewell. And I would want to go with them. And they'd say, no, don't even come with us. We, we won't be any good to be around. As they let their children go back to Africa. And their grandkids. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to just talk on the phone 600 miles away most of the year? Or 6,000 miles away? Number three, and finally, do you love Christ more than you love your child? Remember what Jesus said? If you're going to come and follow me, then you deny yourself, you take up your cross, and part of that cross that you take up is loving Christ and the gospel more than your own children. Wow. How do you do that? How do you do that? You do it from the beginning. It's possible that uh, your child-rearing days are over. Your children are gone. You can't, you can't impact them anymore with your own hands, with your voice in their ear, and their ears not there in which to whisper. Can I challenge you to just keep praying, keep fasting, keep trusting God by faith that He'll get a hold of their hearts the will of God for their lives now starts brand new today. But particularly you moms who have babies in arms and little children around the homes, what are you whispering in their ear? What are you telling them? What are you singing to them? Are you casting the vision that they would become disciples? And then are you willing one day to give your child away? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the testimony of Hannah who stuck with her, her oath who meant what she said. Thank you for blessing her in the story. You blessed her with more children. Father, thank you that we can't outgive you. I thank you for my mother and father who raised us to serve you. You sacrificed through the years, gave up so many good family times, committed to the cause of the work of the gospel. I thank you for that kind of heritage. May we have many families here who will model that. Stir our hearts, clear our minds, show us how to live, I pray, Lord. May the gospel and our Lord Jesus mean everything to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.